Today's reading is from Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 8 and 11 and 12. My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and high regard in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Think about him in all your ways and he will guide you on the right paths. Don't consider yourself to be wise. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father, the son he delights in. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for your presence here with us right now, Lord. We ask that in no way would I or any thing or person be in the way of what you might want to say to us this day. You've been with us all week, Lord. You're with us here this morning, and we ask that you'd use these words to bring deep transformation into our interior life. Make us wise for the sake of the world, for the sake of those we love. And we pray this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's great to see you guys this morning. If we haven't met already, my name is Al, and I have the privilege most Sundays of preaching from Scripture. As Nia mentioned, we are in our second week in our series in the Proverbs called Wisdom's Guide to the Good Life. If you weren't here last week for the opening of this series, I highly recommend uh, you getting that online on our website or on our feed. Um, it's, it's really important for you to understand what is wisdom. Because we basically said that wisdom is proficiency in choosing right paths in the puzzles of life. Wisdom is proficiency at choosing the right kinds of paths when life is puzzling. Because the truth of the matter is, wisdom is knowing the right thing to do when the rules don't apply. Which is about two-thirds of life. 80% of your daily living is not a matter of always right and wrong. It's a matter of what's wise and what's not. Our decisions matter, but most of them are not between right and wrong. And those decisions have lasting impact on our life's direction, on our work, on our relationship, on our world. So how do we grow in wisdom? That's the theme that we're going to be talking about today. Last week we talked about the beginning of wisdom. Today we want to talk about how we train in wisdom. And I don't think that growing in wisdom is a matter of trying harder. That's what tennis coach Tim Galloway discovered. He was a professional coach who could often see what players were doing incorrectly. And he learned that just telling players what they should do didn't actually bring about lasting change. Right? For those of you who are married and have tried to tell your spouse what to do, you've known that for firsthand experience. <laughs> Apparently you don't. So <laughs> give it time. Give it time. 
So Tim learned that he had to train his players to change, and that's when he came up with this method that was called the inner game method. So for example, this is how it would work. Let's say a player needed to keep her eyes on the ball. How would he help her to create this habit? Some coaches might just go in with direct instruction. you got to remember to keep your eyes on the ball. Try harder. Try harder. But Tim found that a player might be able to adjust that kind of behavior in the moment, but it didn't bring about lasting change. It was much harder to keep this going in the long term. So one day, instead of giving an instruction, Galloway asked players to yell out the word bounce out loud every time the ball bounced and to say the word hit out loud when they hit the ball. And the result that was that when players started to improve, when they started to say these simple words, when they started to have these simple methods of training, it actually caused them to keep their eye on the ball. They didn't have to voice in their head saying, I've got to keep my eye on the ball. Instead, they were playing a simple game while they were playing their game, which was tennis. They were just playing a simple game just to say bounce and hit every time I hit the ball. And once he started to see how players could be improved in this way, he stopped giving instructions and started asking questions that would help the players discover for themselves what worked and what needed to be changed. And he found that the best way to get a player to their peak performance wasn't by straining. It was by training. It wasn't by trying harder. It was by training smarter. And that story illustrates for me one of the most single helpful principles that I've learned over the years regarding spiritual transformation. I came across it at a time when I felt really frustrated in my faith and really stagnant in my own life with God. And when I began to learn that spiritual transformation is not about trying harder, it's about training more consistently, I began to develop a firm hope that I could really grow beyond my current barriers, beyond my current struggles and limitations. For a lot of my life, when I heard sermons about following Jesus, or when I preached them myself for that matter, I thought in terms of trying harder, So, for example, I would hear a sermon on patience. And for any of you who have ever had a three-year-old, you know how hard this can be to actually apply. So I'd hear a sermon on patience on a Sunday, and I'd wake up Monday morning determined to be a more patient person, and it generally didn't work. Any better than when I tried, you know, say, to run a marathon, which I can't do right now. I'm not trained for it. I'd end up exhausted and defeated. And that's when I began to learn this principle that spiritual transformation is not a matter of straining more. It's a matter of training. If I'm to grow in wisdom, I've got to learn to train wisely. And in the Proverbs, particularly in chapter 3, Solomon, who's the primary author in this book, he says, training in wisdom requires you to be clear about where you're headed, how to get there, and who you can trust. If you're going to train, if I'm going to train to be a more wise person, to know how to make decisions in the 80% of life when there's no clear right or wrong, then I've got to be clear about where I'm headed, how to get there, and who I can trust along the way. So first, I want to look at the fact that wisdom requires you to be clear about where you're headed. 
Because in Proverbs 3, Solomon, who's the primary contributor of this book, is writing to his son on how to live more wisely. Solomon was the Elon Musk of the ancient world. He had it all. Extreme wealth, pleasure, and power. And he's also no straight stranger to the pitfalls of success. He was the richest man in history. He was also known to be one of the wisest men in history, and he made choices that led to personal tragedy. So as a father, at the end of his life, he wants to train his kids, which is why it says my son repeatedly. He's training future kings to live wisely, and he writes to his son saying, wisdom is a path that you walk on. It's not a doorway that you walked through. That's what he says in verses 5 and 6. Son, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, think on him and he will guide you on right paths. If you're going to grow in wisdom, you have to be clear about where you're headed. You have to be clear on the path that you're walking on. And one of the things that we did on the men's weekend, the retreat that we had a couple of weeks ago, is we had each man, 37 of them, write their own eulogy. Spend time thinking about the end of life. Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits book, The Highly Successful People, he has this one principle that says you must start with the end in mind. Whether you're working on a project, whether you're entering into a relationship, and particularly when it comes to imagining your life. Very few of us stop to think about where is this pathway that I'm about to enter in on is actually headed. And why is that so important? Uh, author... James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits, says this. He says, imagine that you're flying from L.A. to New York City. If a pilot leaving from LAX adjusts the heading just 3.5 degrees south, you will, end, you will land in Washington, D.C. instead of New York. Such a small change is barely noticeable at takeoff. The nose of the airplane moves just a few feet. But when magnified across the entire United States, you end up hundreds of miles apart. Similarly, and this is, not a, this is not a religious book. This is not a spiritual book. It's a great book, though. Similarly, a slight change in your daily choices or habits can guide your life to a very different destination. Making a choice that's 1% better or 1% worse seems insignificant in the moment. But over the span of moments that make up a lifetime, these choices determine the difference between who you are and who you could be. He calls it the law of compound choices. Verse 6 isn't the only place where wisdom is seen as a path. Solomon uses that same metaphor several times in chapter 4. For example... Later on in chapter 4, he says, Let your eyes look forward, son. Fix your gaze straight ahead. Consider carefully the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Keep your feet away from evil. Over and over, he says, Choose the path of wisdom. Why is that such an important metaphor? 
Well, there's two important qualities to a path, at least as I see it. A path implies a certain place, and it implies a certain pace. A path implies a certain pace. You and I live in a highly hurried culture. We're very uncomfortable with boredom. We're very uncomfortable with slowness and process. We have at our fingertips a whole slew of things that can give us instant gratification and actually trigger the very parts of the brain that can be triggered in dopamine or drug usage just by one slide of the phone or by one click of a send. We want things instantly, instant answers, instant love, instant wisdom. Spiritual life is not about walking through a doorway. He doesn't give the metaphor of a door frame. He gives the metaphor of a pathway. And when you go through a doorway, you've arrived, right? You're there. But a pathway is a long-term journey. It's one foot in front of the other. It's certain failures and pitfalls along the way and getting back up again and one foot in front of the other again. There's no weekend seminar on wisdom. It's a lifetime of learning. It's a laboratory. Hear this. The path of wisdom is a process of your character development if it's aligned with God's endpoint. See, wisdom is all about character development. How often are you actually willing to receive feedback from others? Because oftentimes we view the Christian life as knowing all the right things. But very little time am I willing to sit from my spouse or from my friend or from my coworkers and saying, how are my words coming across to you? How am I coming across to you? Where am I offending you? Where am I too easily offended? This is all a process, a pattern of character development, choosing the right paths when there's no clear right and wrong or the puzzles of life and you're becoming proficient at it. But secondly, a path implies that you're heading towards a certain place. That's why in verse 1 he says, My son, don't forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your years and bring you peace and prosperity. Solomon says, keep my commands and they'll bring you peace, or the word is shalom. That word for peace means a rich, meaningful, over-the-top existence. In other words, the path of wisdom is the path to the good life, the truly good life. The one that your Instagram feed is not actually selling you. In fact, you'll notice that this text has several commands and then it has several benefits of what the good life actually looks like. For example, wisdom will bring you into the good life, in verse 2, into a life of peace and prosperity. Verse 4, people will like you. (laughs) Well, verse 8, physical health. Verse 10, material wealth. Verse 18, a blessed life. Verse 21, sound judgment. Verse 23, safety. Verse 24, sleep. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 25, security. This father, Solomon, knows that you need motivation. So there are commands 
Every odd verse, and then there's the benefit. The command and the benefit. Now, some of you who have intended to live the good life that he's talking about might be listening and saying, you know what, to me this sounds like spiritual platitudes, man. If that's where this path leads, then why is it so painful so often? And I want to quickly address that question. Because there's two reasons I believe that we're continually traveling this path or why we should keep traveling this path even when it's painful. The first is that these Proverbs are probabilities, not promises. It's the kind of literature that Proverbs is. It's telling you the way the world is designed to work and yet we live in a fallen world that will not have its final completion until the kingdom of God has fully arrived on this earth. And that's why in Psalm 73, the psalmist is feeling the pain of watching other people who are not practicing a wise life and they still seem to get ahead. He says, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray, for I was envious of the wicked. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die. Their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace. I want you to remember that, that metaphor. And violence covers them like a garment. The psalmist says, hey, did I walk this path of wisdom for nothing? Did I purify my heart for nothing? Then he says, all day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings me new discipline or punishments. When I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final path, how suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. And then he says, when I became embittered and envious... My inmost being was wounded. You ever feel this way? I was foolish, not wise, and I didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me in your counsel, and afterward, you'll take me into glory. He realizes at the end, you know what? I'd be a fool to take any other path than God's guide to wisdom, because when I speak, step back and have a bird's eye view, I realized the second benefit. And that is that the payoff for walking the path of wisdom is on its way. It might not happen today, but Jesus declares, I am coming back and I will reward all who are with me, all who love me and all who love wisdom, my path. That's what you find at the end of Job, at the end of that wisdom literature. That ultimately, he's not only repaid double in this life, he has this reward that's everlasting. He loses it all. He's wondering, why did I do it? Why did I walk this path? And then he says, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. I heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back all my words and I repent in dust and ashes. What Job learns is that God's wisdom is not just a path to the good life. It is the path to the good life. But secondly, wisdom training requires you, one, to be clear on where you're headed. Where's your feet heading? What's the pathway, the end point? But secondly, how do I get there? 
And you remember, again, Coach Galloway, he gave his players specific practices that they were to put into practice on a daily basis that would help shape them to become the player, the person that they knew they could become, even more than they thought that they could become. And that's what, when we receive the gospel by grace, through faith, we begin to train with the Holy Spirit at work in our life into becoming the woman, the man, the person that we actually didn't even know we could become. Someone who can forgive our enemies. Learn to be content when we don't feel like we have everything we wanted on our bucket list. Someone who's filled with unending deep peace, shalom. Someone who's learning to be content when you're abounding in wealth and you have no resources. This is the pathway to the good life. And he says there are particular practices that you must put into play every day if you're going to walk this path. The first one is trusting in the Lord. Verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't rely on your own understanding. We're going to talk about that more in a, in a bit, so I just want to give a brief overview. You can believe, listen, please, please, please listen to this. You can believe in God, yet still trust something else for your real significance and happiness, which is therefore your real God. We hide how we do this from ourselves all the time. And it's only when something actually goes wrong with, say, your career or your family that you realize that it's much more important to you than the Lord himself. The ultimate remedy for this kind of idolatry is looking and beholding the beauty of Jesus through the gospel of grace that begins to release that stronghold in my own soul. That I don't need to justify myself any longer by works or success or romance or achievement if I'm freely justified in Jesus by faith that I'm united to him and to his life. The old me has been put to death, that's what baptism is, and I've been raised into a new life, a union with Jesus that's entirely different. Therefore, I trust in him to lead me down this path. The second daily practice, and how do you do that? I don't know, but that's something you, you can ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you how today and tomorrow you wake up trusting him more. The second practice is submitting to his word. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Every area of our life, he's saying, is to be submitted to God's word and not to my ways. See, your culture, my culture is telling me to submit everything to my understanding. To question everything, including the Bible. But the truth is, everyone must choose, choose something to not question. Everyone has to choose what they're not going to question. Most modern people don't question their right and ability to question everything. So everyone is living by faith in some ultimate authority. And Proverbs calls us to make it God's word, not our ultimate reason, our emotion, or our intuition. 
And that's why scripture can guide you in all your ways, even when there's no specific verse for every life situation. As you immerse yourself in the Bible's story, in the story of where history is ultimately heading, who's at the root of it all, it begins to cause us to live differently. It makes every part of your life be affected how you spend your money, how you relate to people, how you allocate your time, how you see yourself. You begin to look differently than you did if you didn't believe that story. Because the Bible is God's word to your feet, God's lamp to your feet, and light for your path. I think we need to hear this, man. I don't say it often enough because to me it's a no-brainer. You've got to figure out ways to immerse yourself in Scripture if you're to walk this path and train in wisdom. And it's got to be intentional and practical. Maybe you start with small, simple steps on a daily basis. Okay, I'm just going to read, you know, this chapter per day. Whatever it might be for you, how the Holy Spirit is guiding you. But the way that you're transformed is by the renewing of your mind. Another practice is that you're becoming teachable. He says in verse 7 and 8, Don't consider yourself to be wise. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. The third sign or the third practice on the path is a willingness to take advice. Fools are wise in their own eyes. Some take no advice at all. Other fools listen to only one kind of advice, right? Teenagers (laughs) are usually open to only their peers which is scary for every parent. Some of us are only open to people of our own class or of our own race or of our own political persuasion and not to others. It's called confirmation bias. Wisdom is the ability to begin to see things through as many other lenses as possible through the word of God and through the eyes of your friend or of people from other races or classes or political cultures. How many friends do you have that you ask for their advice and they're not of your particular party, political party, your race, or your social class? I have found it so vital as a man entering into my 40s, to learn from other men and other women, people who are older and wiser than me, so I can learn how to be a better father, a better leader, a better husband. I also find it important to learn from people younger than me and of the same age range as me. Be teachable. That's another practice. Another practice he puts here is being generous. He says in verses 9 and 10, honor the Lord with your wealth. With the first fruits of all your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. The fourth practice he puts on this path is generosity. We'll talk about this more in later, later on in the series, but essentially what he's saying is an inordinate love of money and confidence And its power can blind you, deceive you. And the best way to break money's power over us is by giving lots of it away. By nature, I have been, I I grew up with a scarcity mentality. 
And I'm telling you from firsthand experience that I can be equally as like uh, enthralled by the, by the allure of money as any wealthy or rich person out there. As someone who didn't grow up with a lot of money, I can still be just as greedy as probably more than somebody who has lots of it. And what we've been learning, me and Nina, is that the countless times that we have given our money away in order to test God, that we can actually trust him to replenish beyond our need, it has come back beyond what we could actually give. Because you're actually using faith. We can talk about faith all day long. You know when it comes down to brass tacks? When you're giving your money away. That's when you're saying, okay, Jesus, I'm believing you for this to be my provider. And I'm going to test your word that I cannot outgive you. And every time my wife and I have done that, we have learned the same principle. And every time I'm in the same opportunity again, it's just as scary as it was when I did it before. That's how faith works. It's a pathway. It's not a doorway. Fifth practice is learning from your adversity. He says, do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father, the, one, the son that he delights in. The fifth practice on the road to wisdom has to do with adversity and trouble in life. It has to do with learning from the suffering that you're going through. I want you to really listen to this because I heard this from a man who went through an emotional and mental breakdown. At the time, I was experiencing incredible bouts of depression. He said this. He stood up there with his little body. He was a pastor who had, had, a, had emotional breakdown. They found him on the side of the, of the road, weeping, and he had no idea where he was. He was overworked, overstressed, and he was completely <laughs> underrested. And he said, you know what I've learned about suffering? I've learned that suffering will change you, but not necessarily for the better. That's your choice. It's your choice on how you're trusting, how you're learning from your suffering. I remember a particular vacation that my wife and I took at one point. We got into an argument. We got into a fight. It had to do, you know, the fault in this, this particular case was mine. <laughs> and I was just so angry, man. I was angry at God the next day because we had slept in two separate bedrooms that, that night. And I woke up that next morning and I said, are you disciplining me? Is this correction on me? I was mad. And I opened, I opened the scripture. I just happened to be in Jeremiah that particular day. And it said, my son, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. You know why God disciplines you? Because you're his child. Hebrews says, if you're an illegitimate son or daughter, you don't get disciplined. I don't even care. I see unruly kids all the time. I'm not stepping in and disciplining that child because that's not my problem. But I discipline my children because I want them to live wisely. Because I want them to walk on the path of character. And I want them to live the good life. And therefore, I intervene in their life. And I actually bring words of correction. And sometimes, more than words, practices that provide ultimate healing. And that's what God, as your father, will do. 
If, you've, if you're like, I've actually never been disciplined, then you might want to look into that. The final practice, and I won't get into this too much, is doing justice. He says, do not withhold, verse 27 through 28, good from those to whom it's due. When it's in your power to act, do not say to your neighbor, go back tomorrow, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you, when you already have it with you. Proverbs talks about justice as the economic good that we must give our neighbor with practical aid. It actually says that this belongs to them. It's actually their right. And it's actually your responsibility as you're looking around and you're helping others to live a good life. But we're going to talk about justice more in the coming weeks, so I don't want to get bogged down with it. Actually, two weeks from now. But justice, practicing justice, is one of the six practices that Proverbs 3 shows us that if we want to walk this path and we want to train in wisdom, every day we're saying, Jesus, will you please help me to practice trusting you with all my heart, submitting to your word in all areas of my life, being generous with what I have, learning from adversity, being teachable, and practicing justice. Now, remember we said that walking on this path of wisdom, training in wisdom, requires you to, one, be clear of where you're going. What's the end of this path? Two, to know how to get there. And three, to know who to trust along the way. Going back to that illustration about that tennis coach, Tim Galloway. Remember, his players ultimately reach their destination, their, they, they reach their, their, their potential because they trusted him enough to do what he said. If they just said, yeah, I trust you, coach. Tell me what to do. But they actually didn't do it. Does that mean they trusted him? No. The same way if you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, I think that you should consider this. You're like, totally, doc, I agree but you go away and you don't put it into practice, you actually don't trust the doctor. Notice in verse 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Submit to him in all your ways, and he'll guide you on the right paths. I want to start with that word trust. The Bible doesn't offer wisdom as a formula. Scripture isn't a sacred book of virtues. In other words, if you want to be wise, you've got to walk this path in daily relationship with the one who invented wisdom, the one who carved out this pathway, who stands in stark contrast to everything else that you may be tempted to trust. And this is especially relevant to you who are in a place of waiting right now. Because whatever you're trusting or hoping for that will actually take you out of a place of tension, man, that thing ultimately will crumble. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Another way to say this is lean on him with all you got. Put all your weight on him. You're trusting in that chair right now to hold you up. Can you trust Jesus to hold you up? 
It doesn't say trust in the Lord with all your brain, although we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It says trust in the Lord with all your heart, with all your hope. Chapter 4, it says guard your heart with all diligence. Guard your heart with all diligence because out of it flows the wellspring of life. The way that we trust is by submitting. He says, in all your ways, if you have an NIV translation, submit to him. The reason why it says submit is that Jesus is not your life coach. He's the king. A life coach, you, you take their advice. A king someone you submit your life to. Fearing the Lord means falling before him. The Bible is filled with commands, and submission simply means I am a disciple of his. The word disciple or discipline is how, where we get the, the word disciple is the root word of discipline. But why should I submit? Here's why. People think Christianity is about obeying rules. But the reason why I submit is because it's about covenantal love. Look at verse 1, or verse 2. For they will bring you, listen, follow my teaching, son. They will bring you many days of full life and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness, covenantal love, leave you. Tie them around your neck like a necklace. Write them on the tablet of your heart like a book. The proud tie pride around their neck, the psalmist says, Solomon says, I want you to tie God's covenantal love around your neck. And where do you find God's covenantal love? You find it in the cross. In Jesus laying his life down for you. Him saying, this is the new covenant, this bread and this wine, a symbol of my body and blood broken for you. He uses those two metaphors. What will it look like for you this week to tie that covenantal love around your neck, to have it written on your heart, to know that you're not just submitting to someone who is the sovereign creator, you're submitting to a loving father. And he doesn't just give you a compass to guide the way, he gives you himself through the cross to lead you home. I've used this story a couple of times. Several years ago, I was leading a winter retreat. My daughter was three years old. She was walking on my hand, and I told her, come on, babe, it's snowy out. Everybody's gone inside. Let's find our way back to our cabin. We'll go see mommy. We'll sit. We'll have some hot chocolate, all that sort of thing. But as we started walking, she stopped and held my hand and paused. And I said, what are you doing? And she says, are you sure this is the way? I'm like, you're three. Pipe down. Are you sure this is the right path? Are you sure you know how to get there? And I had led this camp so many times, I could find the way back to the cabin with my eyes closed. I knew we were going in the right direction, but for her fear, it was real. I pause and I ask my Father in heaven so many times, are you sure this is the right way? Are you sure you know what you're doing? I don't know if I can fully trust you. And you know what my Father tells me? Son, training and wisdom is all about trusting me. I will lead you on this path. If you are willing to trust me, I will take you to the places and make you become the person that you actually never thought you, be, you could become, a person of wisdom. Training and wisdom 
is all about trusting me. That's what Jesus says to us as we turn to the table. Notice he says this from the standpoint of the father. A father writing to a son, which is a reminder that we can't do this alone. We need one another. We need to do this in community. And that's why we'll come forward. We'll receive communion together. We'll receive prayer from others. Because this kind of transformation, man, it's the path that God is calling you to. Thank you, Jesus, for your words to us that are a reminder again and again that we fall down.